Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for being with us today, everybody. It's great to see your comments on the episode pages at thenexttrack.com. Thanks for participating. You can also use the contacts page there to get in touch with us directly, or use Twitter. Follow us at NextTrackCast. Well, what do you know? This is episode number 100 of The Next Track. This is a big day, Doug. Cue the big day music. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. If you had said when we first started doing this podcast that we'd actually reach 100, I'd have probably laughed. I said, yeah, we'll probably get about 30 and then feel like knocking off. But now that we've reached 100, now my argument is, yeah, but 100 is really just kind of an arbitrary number. It doesn't really mean anything. It's like, you know, I, sh I know people attach meaning to it, but it's really just mystical meaning and it doesn't really mean anything. It's just a number. But of course, when we get to our two-year anniversary, I'll say the same thing about that. Well, two-year, it's date. It's an arbitrary man-made number. It doesn't really have any meaning to it and it's just magical. But um, actually, the more I think about it, I guess it is pretty exciting that we've got 100 episodes or 99 episodes under our belt. And we'll see how this one goes. <laughs> well, our two-year anniversary is in one month right. because 52. Right. But it, it is an arbitrary number. But don't forget that it's we use 100 as a round number because we have 10 fingers and thumbs. And it's 10 times 10. And we're not going to go into the origin of mathematics in Sumerian goat-keeping culture. Okay, if, if you say so. But we're going to talk about music. <laughs> what we wanted to do today is look back at how we listen to music today and how that's changed over these past 100 episodes or two years. And I think it's changed a lot for both of us, hasn't it? Well, I know for a fact that the major change in my life is is the streaming. That's That's what's been going on while we've been doing these podcasts and while we've been discussing. And I think a lot of our episodes kind of talk about the changes that that are incurred when you've gone from your 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 physical media into a, a, a streaming situation. And for sure, both of us are now listening to streaming more than we did when we first started doing the podcast. It's worth pointing out that since we're both Apple ecosystem people, we never really hooked into Spotify, though you did use Pandora quite a bit. Yeah. Apple Music was released in June 2015, so it's just under three years that it's been around. In the early months, I was trying it out because I write about this stuff, and I was using it a bit, and I wasn't using it that much. But like you, I've moved into streaming, and I've greatly curtailed the amount of money I spend on physical music. I, I almost rarely download. If I'm going to buy something, I'll buy the CD. I don't see a lot of interest in buying downloads when I can almost always get the same music stream. You mentioned Pandora. I used to listen to Pandora a lot, but I've canceled my subscription. And if I use it at all lately, I'll use the free ad-supported version. So that's a change for me. Um, but as far as downloads, statistics bear that out. There's been an article and some stats floating around recently that said CDs and vinyl are now ahead of digital downloads. But that's not because CD and vinyl has increased, it's because the digital downloads are experiencing declines in, in double-digit percentages. So people are downloading uh, fewer and fewer files. I don't think it's going to go away. I think as long as the record labels continue to make a buck on file downloads, they'll be available somewhere, if not iTunes, then Amazon or and other places. There are plenty of places to buy music files on the internet. But anyway, we have made that transition from physical media to more streaming. And I know in the early days, I was not a big fan of subscription or streaming services. 
my big objection and our big objection with Spotify is the interface. We just can't get past it. Yeah. But using something that we're comfortable with, like iTunes, made the transition a little bit easier. It, it, it's a lot easier to to stream music on iTunes, uh, for me anyway, than it is to stream on Spotify. Even so, the transition seemed to go fairly simply. Yeah, I find myself... There are times when I'm working, I'm writing an article, and I want to listen to some music. I like to listen to music when I write. And, you know, sometimes you just know what you want to listen to. There's a particular Grateful Dead concert you might want to hear, or a Miles Davis album, or, you know, some blues or Indian sitar music. You, you have the idea. But at other times, I don't know what I want to listen to, and I go to Apple Music for you, and it gives me a lot of choices, and it gives me... New releases, which I'm probably more attentive to than I was in the past with digital downloads. It gives me four groups of four albums. It gives me some artist playlists. I, I almost never listen to those playlists unless it's like, here's a jazz trombonist who I've never heard before. So I'll put on a playlist and, and discover some of his music. I think part of the problem that a, a lot of uh, music nerds like us have with Apple Music, though, is that it's sort of caters to the lowest common denominator music listener just like radio does to a certain extent playlists are the big thing and and activity music is the big thing and i don't listen to those that's not the way i consume music i i consume music via album um individual tracks and playlists that are great background wallpaper music may be fine for some people and but that seems to be the way that uh, that that apple music and spotify are are gaining momentum because people enjoy these playlists that are made by other people that are shared by other people and that uh, are manufactured for spotify um so I, I, if the playlist is the thing I, I guess i'm not i'm not attuned to that no i'm looking right now we're recording this on monday so i see the monday's album section when i scroll down a bit and for example from our jazz editor gives me four albums by Art Pepper, Thelonious Monk, Alice Coltrane, and John Schofield. Now, I know the Monk album, but I don't know the three others. And if I'm in a jazz mood, that might just make me click on one of those albums to hear it. And then in the, in the Tailored for Your Taste, I get a record by Yorma Kalkinen, Grateful Dead, Mississippi John Hurt, and Jerry Garcia. So this is knowing what's in my library and being a lot more specific to the quantity of Grateful Dead and blues music I have. But I rarely play playlists like Classical Concentration or Classical Chill or Classical Essentials. Why are they giving me all of that today? So they don't have your favorite playlist, uh, Classical Music for Elevators, that's still not being No, I haven't seen that in a while, but I'm sure that'll come up to the top again. Actually, out of six playlists, four are classical, the three I mentioned, a Beethoven, the Revolutionary of the Piano. One is Bebop Essentials, and the other one is Sleep Sounds to find deepest calm with these ambient beats and tranquil electronic tracks. That's nice. So are they, do you find that these playlists are being recommended because you listen to this music or because you actively love, dislike things? I, I don't tend to love and dislike a lot. What I will dislike is when I get new releases that are things that I really don't like, like rap music, and they keep pushing rap music sometimes. I will love certain albums as a way of kind of bookmarking them. And, and in particular, we've talked about ECM records and their jazz albums. And when I see a new ECM record, I listen to it. And if I like it, I love it because I can't always remember either who the musicians are or what the music is like. And in, in my next track selection from last week, 
I mentioned that there was a record that I wanted to listen to again because I didn't remember what the music was like. And, and it was very nice and it was a kind of mellow, ambient jazz, but I didn't remember it well enough. So I will love albums for that and I'll add them to my library and that way I can look back and think, okay, well, I listened to this, but I don't remember it. One of the things I don't like doing is having to add stuff to my library in order to remember to listen to it because then it stays in my library. Yes. And 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 not to be a stickler about it, but I don't want a lot of extra uh, uh, effluvia in my in my library. Yeah, that's one of the downsides of this. There's no other way to to bookmark something. You either add it to your library or you don't. If you love it, you can only find it in your library with a smart playlist if it's in the library. You can't get a list of all the tracks and albums you've loved in Apple Music, but not added to your library. And that's a little bit of a problem. You, you can't just hear something say, I really like that. I'm going to just tap or click, and now, then I can go back to it, because you can't go back to it. The thing that uh, I think we're finding about playlists, and maybe the reason that I don't, I don't like them, is that they seem to be just... When you, when you come from music the way we do, and that is listening to albums and, and listening critically, you, you, you're less interested in arbitrary music being played, you know, one after the other. For instance, maybe that's why I don't listen to, to radio that much anymore, um, because it, it ceased to become surprising. It just became uh, just familiar. And I guess I, I, I abhor a, a familiarity with the music. I want, I want to be surprised every so often. And I don't get that so much from playlists uh, as I would with I'm mixing my own music, maybe, or, or listening to a decent internet radio station, for example. But um, I, I, I find I don't get the, the um, surprise, the adventurous in in these manufactured playlists. Yeah, in episode 90, we had journalist Liz Pelly who was talking about streaming music and playlists. And, and she was explaining how playlists are big business because so many people do depend on playlists that if an artist gets a song in a popular playlist, they're more likely to get noticed. That sort of drives the quality of the playlist down. It's watered down with a lot of popular stuff and less adventurous music will be in a playlist if the goal of the playlist is to reach as many people as possible. Exactly. And there are so many playlists that it's hard to have niche playlists. I mean, again, on Artist Spotlight playlists, which is what you get in For You, these are playlists that tend to focus on, in my case, artists that might be obscure. And, and in some ways, they're interesting, but they're little more than a best of list. And this week, I have uh, uh, some obscure artists, Cabaret Voltaire, The Associates, um, Gil Evans on the session. Okay, he was an arranger. He wasn't that obscure. But, but Cabaret Voltaire and The Associates, most people listening to this have never heard of. Well, that's pretty lucky because I see a lot of the same things recommended over and over again, rather than stuff that's just two degrees sideways of that, you know? Well, and it's because I play music by some of these bands, and I guess there, there's just an algorithm that bounces these playlists up to the top every now and then, depending on what I listen to. Yeah. But, but again, I rarely listen to the artist playlist unless it's a very specific artist that I'm interested in. So there's this playlist, Bebop Essentials, and I think I've actually listened to this several times. It's five and a half hours, and I like Bebop Jazz, and I know some of the musicians, but I don't know Clyde Hart. I don't know much music by Bud Powell. I never heard of Fats Navarro, Alan Eager. I've heard some Charlie Parker and obviously Miles Davis and Coleman Hawkins, but 
sometimes I'll listen to a playlist like this that's like a subgenre or an era because it'll be a way for me to discover some of the music. Yeah. But I'm much less likely to just take a random, you know, music for elevators or music for barbecues playlist. Yeah, I think there, I guess there are some playlists where they, you know, they try to go a little deeper. Um, I don't, I don't see those as much, like I said, as far as discovery goes. I guess it helps a little bit. I, I mostly find myself just listening to an artist and then dropping down to the bottom of the page and going, you might like these. Um, you get sort of that feel in the new music and favorites and chills playlist too. Uh, but like I said, I don't listen to the uh, the prepared playlist so much. I, I, I used to subscribe to them, hoping that they would be updated and changed frequently, but a lot of them aren't. I never listen to the new music mix because it's full of things that, I've never heard of artists I've never heard of, music that I don't care for. I don't know how they calculate it. I do occasionally listen to the chill mix because that is more often music that's in my library or music that I've liked. And, and it is, chill isn't always the right word for all of the tracks, but it is more down-tempo than some of the other playlists. One of the other elements that I sort of go back and forth checking out in Apple Music is friends are listening to. So I'll see what you listen to. And yeah. sometimes I find that curious, but <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I haven't followed any new people since the very beginning and very few people have followed me. I think this is something that is relatively unknown by most people. Most of the people I'm following are people I know professionally, other journalists, which doesn't mean that they have musical tastes like me. There's only really a couple who do. And I'll just shout out to Chris Breen, who used to be one of my editors at Macworld, who now works for a fruit company in California. And we have a lot of overlap in the music we like. So when I see him listening to something, I'll often check it out. And Peter Cohen, who's another Mac journalist, who's really into the sort of 80s post-punk new wave stuff that I like. I wonder how the uh, the profile feature is working out. Because like you, I signed up for it right away, like a lot of uh, tech people and iTunes geek people signed up for it right away. And then you're looking around, well, who can I follow it? And those are the only people available. But I haven't seen much action from it since. And it is kind of an effort to kind of go and look into someone's profile. Actually, it's it's like when my wife asked me to get the car keys out of her handbag. I said, I don't want to look in your handbag. It's like, I kind of don't want to make the effort to look in at people's profiles and what they're playing. But the... Uh, the brief little friends are listening to row is nice to look at, but I don't think I'll, I'll make much of an effort to go and actually see what, what people are listening to. Um, none of my real friends or real family other than you are actually connected. Yeah, to me. Same here. So, I mean, we've got each other, Doug. Yeah. Well, I'm following you. So we've, yeah, I'm following you yeah, and I listen to some so of the music you listen to too. You're always guaranteed at least one person paying attention. Yeah. But so one of the other things we talked about this in episode number 85. And this isn't going to be a retrospective where we're going to go back over a lot of episodes, but we did want to mention some of the some of the insights we've had in this nearly two-year period. We talked about how much music is too much in episode 85. And this is really one of the problems that there's just too much music and we're spoiled and we don't take the time to get into an album and listen to it and really appreciate it before the next new shiny thing comes along. And we want to check that out. Yeah, one of my favorite episodes was with uh, James Jackson Toth, who did the experiment where he was going to try to 
live with one album per week, and he didn't get past that the first day's afternoon. He was just so distracted by other kinds of music, and he had just too much at his fingertips. And, you, you know, one of the revelations that I've had is is that very thing, is that when we were younger and you had limited resources, you could only have so much music. And so that's what you listen to all the time, and you got to be intimate with it, and you got to know it really well. And now that you can, you essentially have the key to the record store and can go in there anytime you want, you don't, you, you just don't spend that much time with a single thing anymore. In fact, one of the things I like about Apple Music, or even Spotify for that matter, is that if I suddenly think of an album I want to listen to, I can go listen to it, and then I can say, okay, I've listened to that. I never have to listen to it again. Uh, and I don't need to own it. But again, I think that's because of the way I am about music. I'm, I'm curious about lots of different kinds of music. Most people aren't. Most people are just perfectly happy listening to whatever, you know, whatever streams at them. But because we like to look for things, uh, I think that's the effect that it has on me. Particularly across genres. We're, we're more interested in a variety of music, even though neither of us really cares for hip hop or rap. Uh, there are certain, you're not a big jazz fan. There are certain types of music that we don't get, but we do have a broader, a sort of broader genre awareness than I would say the average music listener. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we listen critically too. It's not just casual listening. It's we do listen critically. We sit down and intentionally listen to something. Right. While sometimes it's background music, but sometimes it's listening for the sake of listening. So one thing we've talked about over and over is the whole business model of streaming music and how that's changing. And just today I came across a very interesting example I'm going to mention quickly what my next track is for this week, because when I looked this up is when I found something interesting. It's a piece of music by Max Richter called Sleep. It's about eight hours and 20 minutes long. And what's interesting is that when this was released, I think it was about three years ago, it was only sold by digital download. It was 31 tracks. The shortest one was under three minutes and the longest was over 33 minutes, but more than half the tracks were 15, 20 minutes. And when I looked on Apple Music today, the same thing is there, but it's 204 tracks. Now, this is the this is how the classical record label Deutsche Grammophon is how should you say circumventing or hacking the digital streaming payment model because no matter how long a piece of music is, it gets paid the same amount for a stream. So if they were to release this one track, this one 8-hour track, they would receive the same amount as any two-and-a-half-minute Ramon song would. As any Beatles song, exactly. So they did release it in 31 tracks, which, which kind of makes sense because the, the music moves through a, a number of motives that return, and it's a sort of... Uh, I'll talk about the music more at the end of the show, but the 31-track split does make sense. And in episode 69, we talked to Brian Brandt, who runs Mode Records. This is a small classical record label that he founded initially to release the music of John Cage. And he was talking about this. He's got some pieces that are one hour long, a single piece on a CD. And the unfairness of the fact that he would get paid the same amount as a Taylor Swift or a Britney Spears song. But isn't this a problem that recorded classical music has faced forever? It's just its longer format can't be contained on the medium used to distribute it, whether it's, you know, 78 albums or uh, CDs or and, and now streaming. I mean, isn't 
I mean, is it right to divide up a a, a work into into movements, or, or should it? Is it all one thing? No, movements movements are scored with beginnings and ends. Um, there there are some exceptions where the the last two movements of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony sort of segue into each other, and there are some Mahler symphonies that that do that as well. But for the most part, the, the standard symphony is four movements, and they've got a beginning and an end. And and when you look at a score, you can see it. So it's in most cases then it's justifiable because a work has movements, and each of those things should be a individual track right and that's how it should be exactly paid, right? but the problem is that that track that's 10 or 20 minutes or say in the the final movement of Mahler's third symphony 30 minutes long gets paid the same amount as you said a, a ramon song which is just basically one verse and a chorus uh, but remember second verse same as the first you, you made an interesting comment in our pre-show discussion i might have yeah you said we're still trying to fit this analog thing into this digital thing. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the Cliff Notes version of my uh, my thoughts on the analog digital paradigm clash. Skeuomorphism occasionally will fall into the uncanny valley, and so many times our analog music experience does not fit into the digital experience. You get that uncanny valley. It's been, a, it's been a bumpy ride going from analog to digital. It has. And I think this is the case every time a technology changes that the only way you can apply a model to it, whether it be a business model or a, a browsing model, in the sense that the way people are accessing this music or the way people would access books in a library, you know, it's still based on an old-fashioned model, maybe not the Dewey Decimal System. It's not surprising because this is a huge transition, but we've been transitioning like this for 15 years since the early iTunes store and other digital download purveyors. I think what's changing now is that we have this revenue model that's changed. The iTunes store was trying to sell albums rather than songs, even though it sold a lot of songs. And Tracks that were longer than 10 minutes, this is still the case. If a track is longer than 10 minutes, it's an album-only track. So that's a way of compensating classical and jazz records where the tracks are very long. But now that we go into streaming, it's sort of subverting that model that had a lock on the way certain tracks were sold. A record label can decide to not allow certain tracks to be streamed. And I do run across some of these, in fact... I believe there's a none such record of contemporary string quartets, and one of the pieces is 45 minutes long, and it's not available to stream. Now, maybe none such needs to learn that they can cut this into, you know, 10 tracks and allow people to stream it. This analog, the digital problem, isn't just with, you know, the business models. It's also with people's attitudes. I think there's a generation of music listeners who grew up thinking of, Music is consumed via album. So if you liked a song, you had to buy the album. Um, I think some people, with even with their iTunes collections, they try to make a digital representation of what an analog library looks like. So there's even still a mindset that, no, music is on an album. It's not individual tracks. Even iTunes, and I, I try to explain this to people, there's no such thing as an album in iTunes. It's It's individual tracks. An album is an algorithm. But there's no physical album... In, in iTunes, and a lot of people have trouble with that, and I think it's a, it's a general uh, sense of, of, you know, growing up with the album as the thing, and now it's been disintegrated and unbundled into just music fodder, you know, for playlists. As we've said before many times, iTunes is just a database. It doesn't recognize anything like that. We're putting our own categories in, in order to assemble things,
but be it iTunes or another music player or an iOS app or a streaming service, it's just a bunch of songs or tracks. I prefer using the term tracks very often because that's more inclusive. We gen Songs are generally pop. Tracks are include classical and jazz and Indian ragas and all that. But our very first episode was a discussion of songs and albums, and we pointed out how the history of music listening began with songs because 78 RPM records couldn't hold very much, and the album was a collection of two-sided 78 RPM records. So it was maybe four records or eight songs, and it wasn't necessarily sold as an album, but it was more something that you would buy to organize the 78s that you bought separately, kind of the way you buy a photo album to organize your vacation pictures. I really think that's interesting that, you know, the word album comes from sort of a, a, a book sense. And yet, even though we've had long playing records and cassettes and CDs and eight tracks and things like that, we still call a collection of recorded songs an album. I noticed that our second episode was called To Stream or To Own Music. And I think we need to go back and listen to that and see what we were saying two <laughs> yeah. years ago, yeah. comparing it to what we're saying today. I might do that after we finished recording today, because it's true that, you know, we were on the fence. And I think we're we're in a, an odd position because we both approach music from the technical aspect with iTunes and all of that. We're of a certain age to have had the time to amass a collection of music. We grew up in the album era. But we are tech-savvy enough that we're very comfortable making this shift from owning to renting music. You mentioned just a few minutes ago, young people, they're growing up today without any knowledge of what it's like to own music. My, my son is 28 years old, and it's his last, he's the last generation of people who grew up owning music and not renting it. You know, if you're 10 years younger than that, you grew up basically streaming music and renting it. So this is this is really a profound change, as much of a change as going from the 78 to the long playing album. But of course, as I said earlier, the biggest problem is that we have too much music and this is devaluing music. It's it's watering it down. It literally is when you had access to a thousand tracks because you had a hundred albums and now you have access to 40 million tracks. Even though it's not easy to find all the niches in the 40 million and to, to discover all the subgenres, but you still have access to it. It's like, you know, your metaphor of having the keys to the record store. And, and I think this is really going to affect music seriously in the fact that people won't have these emotional attachments to artists that we've had in the past. One of the things I've come to realize is that there will always be a number of people who want to have the music, you know, going back to people who hoarded sheet music. There are going to be people who want to own the music Everybody else was more or less happy with incidental music, whether they heard it on the radio or they went to concerts or that sort of thing. They weren't used to on-demand. But later, when portability was an issue, when you had a CD player that you could take with you or an iPod, in order to listen to music on those devices, you had to buy the music. Now, with streaming, you don't have to buy individual songs anymore. You can listen to whatever you want. You have access to whatever you want. And I think that's a major change. And as you describe, it's also has some downside. Well, if any of the listeners have any interesting comments about how their music listening habits have changed over the past two years or even a little bit longer, please leave us a comment on the show page. And as we wrap up our 100th episode... 
thank you, our listeners, for making it interesting and inspiring us to do these shows. We really appreciate it. All right, now it is time to do our 100th episode. <laughs> next tracks. Kirk? I mentioned earlier that my next track this week is Max Richter's magnum opus called Sleep, 8 hours, 22 minutes. It was designed to be listened to in the background. It kind of takes Brian Eno's concept of ambient music a little bit further. It was really designed to accompany people as they sleep for eight hours, or maybe even more, eight hours and 22 minutes. Or maybe you put it on, it takes you 20 minutes to fall asleep, and then you listen to the rest. It's an interesting concept. It's very relaxing music. It truly is classical music for relaxation. It's not complicated music. You have melodies and motifs that come and go throughout the eight hours that are repeated. Some of the music sounds a bit minimalist, you know, repetition like Philip Glass and Steve Reich. And some of it sounds more like what these record labels like to call neoclassical, what we used to call new age in a way. But it's recorded with classical instruments, with a small classical ensemble. There's some electronic keyboards and, you know, there's oboe and clarinet, there's things like that. It's the kind of record I would want to put on if I have a very busy day and I'm writing all day and I just want something to help me flow through the time. I've never actually listened to it while I was sleeping, but Max Richter has been doing concerts in a number of cities where he starts the concert at midnight and you get a ticket to a bed with a pillow and a blanket and you are intended to sleep through the concert. And kudos to the musicians who play more than eight hours of music. I think that would be interesting because you know how when you're in an uncomfortable bed, you wake up a lot. If you go to a hotel or something, you'd wake up, you'd hear some more of the music, you'd think, oh, that's nice. And then you'd fall back to sleep. So I'd like to experience this one day. In the meantime, you can do it at home. You can stream it on Apple Music. It's 204 tracks. Or you can buy it from Apple Music. It's $35. Or if you just want a taste of it, you can buy a 59-minute single CD version called From Sleep, which has excerpts which are sort of... They follow in the order of the piece itself, and they give you a taste of the more attractive melodies. In any case, Sleep by Max Richter, and it's long. Doug, what about you? Of an evening, a week or so ago, my wife and I had Radio France on, and they played some version of the guitar instrumental Apache. And it was really good. It was very authentic, like the Shadows version, if you're familiar with it. Well, it turns out it was Jeff Beck from an album that I hadn't been aware of, called Rock and Roll Party, Honoring Les Paul. This is a live gig that Jeff Beck did at the Iridium Jazz Club in New York, where Les Paul regularly played, uh, back in 2010, on the first anniversary of Les Paul's death. Would you have guessed that Jeff Beck is a major league Les Paul fan? I guess it makes sense, because you know Les Paul was an innovator of and on the electric guitar, as well as uh, multi-track recording techniques, and Jeff Beck has always pushed sonic boundaries. On this album, at this show, which is also available on DVD, he's backed by Imelda May and her band, who are a terrific rockabilly outfit. He'd been playing with them regularly around this time. And we've got some special guests, Gary U.S. Bonds, Trombone Shorty, Brian Setzer, uh, and other vocalists. Now, the songs they do are all from the 50s and the 60s, sort of like malt shop jukebox hits. So I mentioned Apache. Uh, he does a number of other Les Paul and Mary Ford songs with Imelda May just perfect on vocals. They even, they even use multi-tracked recorded backing vocals like Les Paul and Mary Ford did on their records. 
Uh, they do a fantastic version with this technique of how high the moon. Another beautifully handled instrumental that they do is Les Paul's Sleepwalk. It's just right on the money. Now, it helps that it's a small club with an appreciative audience and a nice and tight small band. But the surprising and delightful thing about this record for me is that Jeff Beck really loves this stuff. Obviously, it's quite different from the rock, jazz, fusion, progressive stuff he does more regularly. But it's great to hear him play the music that obviously influenced him with such skill and affection. It's a great record, fun to listen to. Jeff Beck, Rock and Roll Party Honoring Les Paul is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.